0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that your word is uh, available to us, that we can know you by what you have recorded for your people to hear, and that by your word we know Jesus, that we don't only have words from you, we have you from you. And that you have written your word, not only in this book, but on our heart. So that we might know you through the mediator Christ, who has revealed to us the glory of the Father. We thank you this morning that we have this opportunity to look into your word. And we pray that your spirit would work, even what it says in this word, that your spirit works. That we would have your ink stain on our hearts. He would ride on us and that we would see the glory of the Lord because of the gospel that he has worked. Lord, we pray that you would do this in the midst of every heart this morning. We pray this in his name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning's passage is a passage about ministry. It's about the ministry of the gospel at work in the midst of the life of Corinth through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and those who are with him. We're continuing our study this morning together through the letter of 2 Corinthians. And this morning we're going to see the way that God has worked in their midst to authenticate not only the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but the ministry of God in his gospel in their We're going to look at the four paragraphs of this passage this morning, so I hope you'll keep your Bibles open and follow along uh, together as we come to understand this passage and pray that the Lord would work in our midst by it. Uh, In this passage, we begin in the first paragraph by considering ministry commendation. Ministry commendation. This chapter begins with a ministry commendation, a sort of recommendation letter. Uh, In this case, this recommendation recommendation letter is a self-recommendation. Look at verse 1 with me. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul says, again. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Again. Paul has actually commended himself a number of times already in the book, and he's going to again throughout 2 Corinthians. Just consider these three examples in chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. He's he's recommending, he's commending himself and those who are ministering with him to them by means of their simplicity and godly sincerity. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, he does so again. Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. He's commending to them the truthfulness of the gospel that he proclaims. In chapter 2, verse 14, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere as the Lord leads the Apostle Paul and those who are ministering with him from town to town, suffering in each place, but yet proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is spreading the fragrance of Christ everywhere, even as they have come to Corinth. Some have suggested that verse 1 should be translated, we are starting to recommend ourselves to you again. It's not a a rhetorical question, but a simple statement. Here we go again, having to prove ourselves to a people that ought to know the faithfulness of the gospel that we have preached among you. Paul had stayed 18 months in Corinth, in Acts chapter 18, it shares a bit about that stay. He Surely, after 18 months of faithful gospel ministry, the Apostle Paul does not need a recommendation letter. They know him. They don't know about him. They haven't just heard him preach. He's lived among them. He planted that church. He's a sort of father in the faith for them. And his ministry has borne fruit that bears witness to his authority among them. It's almost like he's saying, if you want a letter of recommendation... Write it yourselves. You guys could write the best letter that I could have. You know it. You know the ministry that has taken place in your midst. That's why in verse 2, he says this You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. It's something beautiful that's taking place there. It's not just that they are the the recommendation letter because of what has happened in their midst. It's because of what has happened in their midst has been written on the apostles' heart. He loves them. He loves to see what God is doing in their midst. It's like he's saying, we've loved you, and that love is written on our, our hearts, and everybody can see what we have suffered for your sake. Just as we we have written the ministry of the gospel on your hearts, the Spirit of the living God has written you on our hearts. Your faith, your transformation in Christ, is the testimony and witness of our ministry, the Apostle Paul is saying. And Paul is happy to confess this. He's happy to confess that the ministry has been faithful among them and it's borne fruit among them because their faith is not something that Paul himself has done. This is what gets Paul really excited. This is what really is the testimony of 2 Corinthians. There has been a great work of God in the midst of Corinth and a great work that you are abandoning by considering false teachers and another gospel and rejecting the one who has been a faithful minister among you, but his concern and his, his willingness to confess the faithfulness of his ministry is because he knows his ministry is not what has worked the gospel among them. It's the message of the ministry. It is the Spirit himself that has worked in their Hearts. Paul is happy to confess this because their faith is not something that he himself has done, but the Spirit of God has done in them. In fact, this is part of the reason why the Corinthians' faith is a testimony of faithful ministry, because the sort of faith that's worked among the Corinthian church is a faith that is, quote, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. The faith that has been birthed among the Corinthian church is something that doesn't bear witness to any man. Because no man could work that work. The work, the ministry, the the fruit that has truly been born among them isn't the work of any man or woman. It's the work of God himself, who is the ink written on human hearts. You see, as we'll see as we work our way through this passage, Paul did not come to Corinth with a new law. He didn't come with a new teaching, with a new obedience, with a new philosophy or a way of living. He didn't come with great rhetoric and a great new idea or strategy for living a better life in Corinth. Paul came with news. News of a Redeemer. And it's the Redeemer himself by his Spirit who has done the work to redeem. When a faithful minister of the gospel labors among a people, he doesn't leave his mark. There's a mark that's left, but ultimately he doesn't leave his mark on the people because the ministry of the gospel is the mark of the Holy Spirit. The only reason the mark of the minister of the gospel might, might leave a mark behind is because the minister of the gospel is shared in the same spirit. And so if there's a mark among the people that looks like the same as the mark that is upon the minister of the gospel, it's because it's the same gospel who has redeemed both. That is genuine, authentic ministry. I'll tell you, one of the things it guards against, it guards against the idea of super apostles, something that he addresses later in the book. The idea that there is this super class of Christian who bear this special mark, right? A glory people. No, it's whoever bears the mark of the Spirit bears the mark of Christ. So what's the most genuine commendation of faithful ministry that the Apostle Paul can think of? That he has spoken eloquently? That he has revealed to them some great glory about himself and proven his worth? No. It's that the ministry looks like the fruit of the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit Himself in their midst. There's a twofold application for us in this passage so far. As we receive the Word, the ministry of others, we must not be looking for some impressive ministry that comes with great commendations of skill or qualifications of the gospel minister. You know, the cr- the Corinthians had been hoodwinked by some impressive, highly recommended false teachers, and they snuck their way in after Paul had left. But genuine ministry that's commended by God is ministry that is simple and sincere. It's simple, unadorned proclamation of the gospel, so that the mark that is left behind is the mark of the gospel at work by the power of the Spirit of God. When you're considering the ministry of others and the mark that they are leaving upon you, look for the mark that looks like the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second implication for us so far is this opens up gospel ministry to us all. It's a powerful mark. It's a powerful implication for us. You don't need a seminary degree, it turns out. You don't have to have church staff experience. You don't have to be rhetorically skilled. Some of you, I've heard you say it. Sometimes I just get my words all mixed up. Man, have you read Paul? <laughs> like, this stuff is confusing, all right? It sure seems like mixed up words sometime. But what he's driving at is the gospel of Jesus Christ simple and unadorned. You don't need a seminary degree, you don't need staff experience, you don't have to have all the right words to participate. To partner together in gospel ministry, your goal is simple. Do I know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and is it my goal to make him known? And am I willing to look like a fool as I do it? You see, that was Paul's gig, is that he was looking like a fool as he was ministering the gospel, and he was suffering from town to town, but he was willing. He was willing to look the fool in order to make much of Jesus And then what you do is you wait. You wait to see the Spirit of God leave His mark on the lives of the people around you. This is the ministry that is commended. Now in the second paragraph, as we continue to work our way through the passage, we see ministry confidence. Ministry confidence. True gospel ministry is through Christ toward God. Look at it with me, verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ, toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. True gospel ministry is from through Christ, toward God. It's both Christ-centered and God-centered. It's from Him and through Him and to Him, a theme that's picked up over and over again through the letters of the New Testament. Verse 5 says that they know their ministry is sufficient. Now, that's a powerful statement. I know my ministry is sufficient. How can you say that? How can you have bold confidence to say, I know our ministry is sufficient. The gospel that's been preached in Corinth is absolutely sufficient for their salvation, transformation, and perseverance In the faith, but he also knows that the sufficiency is not through the ministry itself. That is, the ministers are not powerful, they're not able, they're not strong, they're not sufficient to save. They exercise no effective strategy or technique. Paul's argument throughout the book thus far that their commendation was not their strategy, their confidence was not their strategy. Their confidence was the message, a message that was delivered simple and sincere. I remember um, I was with a a group of friends and we were involved in evangelism in a particular town in northern Indiana. And uh, one of my friends had come back and she shared the gospel with a number of children. And her first words and walking into the room with us as we were gathering back again to pray and to celebrate together was, I saved three kids today. And she was really excited, right? And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. My first words to her was, well, how many times did you die on a cross? Of course, that offered the correction very quickly. She didn't mean what she had said. But sometimes we can begin to feel that way. Sometimes we can feel like we've exercised just the right strategy, said it just the right way. Or perhaps we feel like we... Need to. I have no doubt that God brought salvation to some children on that particular day because I know that the gospel message was preached by my friend. And I know that gospel message is sufficient to save. Where is our confidence? Is it in our ministry methods or the message of our ministry? Our sufficiency, the passage says, is. From God. It's God who has made Paul, along with those who are with him, ministers of his gospel. Now, look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6. Our, our sufficiency is from God, he says, right? Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter. What does he mean by the letter, and how does the letter kill? Well, the letter refers to a superficial use of the law for the sake of self-righteousness. I say superficial because when you apply just the various things the Bible says that you're supposed to do, you just apply it to the surface, and normally you're picking and choosing, right? Just sort of laying it on top of you It's to sort of hide behind, and inevitably that letter, that simple, superficial use of the law, leads to, at best, self-righteousness. So Paul contrasts this superficial, self-righteous possession of the law with ministry of the Spirit. That is, not to possess God's law, to sort of cover us with our self-righteousness, but rather, by the Spirit, to be possessed by God himself. This is the ministry of the Spirit. Not that we do the work of the law in our lives, but that the Spirit does the work of grace in our hearts. That's the contrast that's running out through the whole of this passage. Not that we do a work to cover ourselves by self-righteousness in a superficial use of the law that the Lord never intends for us to use, rather that the Spirit of God would work the grace of the gospel in our hearts. So the passage, to be clear, is not Old Testament bad, New Testament good, all right? That's not the message of any of the scriptures. The contrast is between human action and divine action. The message of Paul is not to declare what you must do, The message of the gospel is to declare what Christ has done. This is the ministry of the Spirit to inform and transform our hearts by the work of Jesus Christ. That's why I said earlier, the Apostle Paul didn't show up in Corinth with a great new teaching. He didn't show up with a great new law. This one's a better one, a new yoke to put upon the people. He showed up with a new message, a new message about the Lord and what he has done. Because the law is powerless to make us righteous. How so? I mean, is it because the law was bad? Was it insufficient because it was incomplete in some fashion, not a good law? If God had come up with a better law to give, it would have worked? No. The law shows us the holiness of God, and in that respect, the law is good. But the law is powerless to make us righteous for this reason. Listen. Because it requires obedience. You see, the the law can display the holiness and the splendor and the glory and the character and the moral rightness of God. But it requires that we obey. And that's where things break down. Because we are disobedient, therefore the law kills There's an illustration that we use in today's language quite often. You'll often hear it said today that you cannot legislate morality. It's a good statement. That is, there's no law that we could pass to make anyone moral. Now, we can pass laws to declare what is right and good and true, what ought to be done and what ought not to be done, but the law doesn't make anyone do it. So you cannot legislate righteousness, it turns out. But, where the law kills because it requires an obedience that we do not perform, the Spirit gives life. Now note a word that's in there that's different than anywhere that the Bible speaks of the law. Note that the Spirit gives life. The word give, it implies grace. The law leaves for us a work to do, The law leaves us with a wage to be earned for performance. And as it turns out, the wage that we end up earning for our performance of the law is death, because we don't perform it to righteousness. But the Spirit declares the work has been done, and so the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Now, I don't want to accidentally assume something here. I don't want to assume the gospel before we move forward. God is holy. And part of the purpose of the law is to reveal the the beauty, the splendor, the excellence of our God and of his way. If God is holy, to live in his presence and enjoy his glory, we too must be holy. That's how we were created in the garden. Adam and Eve, our first parents, were created in perfection. Righteous, walking with God in the garden. But they quickly rejected God's way. They were shaking their fist at God, saying, on my my own, I can live. And so, God gave them over to their rebellion. He removed them from the garden. He pronounced the curse of death upon them For their sin, this was their wage. Now let's be clear. They'd earned their wage. And the wage of sin is death. And so they received it. This is a state that you and I enter the stage. Every one of us, since our first parents, Adam and Eve, we prove ourselves to be children of our parents by our own sin and rebellion. So you can't just sit around and say, I wish Adam and Eve had done it differently. You can wish that all you want, but put you in the garden and see what happens. We are wage earners, and we have rightly earned the wage of death, every one of us. And yet, God in his mercy promised a rescue from the curse of our own sin and rebellion. He sent Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus, who is God the Son, taking on human flesh. And Jesus alone, in all of human history, lived a righteous life in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus is the only man who truly earned the wage of righteousness. Do you hear that? There is a man who has earned a different wage than what you and I have done as it regards the law. We, everyone, have earned death, and he earned righteousness in the flesh. But what did he do? What did he do with the life of righteousness? Well, the Scriptures tell us that he laid it down. That's what he did. He gave himself up to be crucified, to be put to death. What in the world is the only righteous one doing, hanging on a cross of shame? Why did the righteous one die a cursed death? He did so in the place of sinners, so that All who would trust in his sacrifice would be forgiven. God put the sin of all who believe on Jesus so that he died the curse of death in our place as our substitute. More than that, the redeemed are not only forgiven of sin, but God counts to them the righteous life of Jesus. If you're listening, you're like, that's good news. That's a wage I would like to earn but I haven't earned, and therefore the only way I could receive it is by a gift of one who has earned it for me. That's the gospel. I'm not only forgiven, but I'm granted righteousness. It's a simple, sincere statement of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul gives this simple statement of the gospel, verses 3 and 4 there, for I have delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, our confidence, ministry confidence, is not in what we can do. We haven't performed the law, and we haven't performed our ministry to perfection. But rather, our confidence is in what Christ has done. This is what we believe. This is what we declare. This is what we've received And this is what we deliver. The gospel alone is what makes us confident to go about gospel ministry. Not our strategy, not our performance, not our ability to be righteous in front of other people that we are declaring the gospel to, but our clarity, our simplicity and sincerity to declare what Christ has done. This is ministry confidence, which leads us to the third paragraph. Ministry glory. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved on letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites did not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The ministry of death carved in letters on stone. For instance, referring to the Ten Commandments. It's referring again to the superficial application of that ministry for self-righteousness. Paul is drawing our attention back to an episode that takes place in Exodus chapter 34. I would encourage you to write that down in the margin of your Bible so you can go to that during the course of the week and remember what takes place there. For now, let me just read a few verses. Exodus 34, verses 29 through 33. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, that's the Ten Commandments, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders in the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, look what he did. He put a veil over his face. What were the people when they saw The glow of what it's like for the mediator to be in the presence of the holy God? They were afraid to come near him, the passage says. So he put a veil between the mediator and the people. Well, there is no glory without the presence of God. That's where the glory comes from. Moses was not just a shining light. If you know the story of Moses, and I would encourage you, go back and enjoy the read. It's a complicated story that even involves a little bit of murder, you know? He's not a great glowing light, of the Scriptures. There's no glory without the presence of God. That's where the glory comes from. That's where the light, that's where the glow comes from. That's where the shining begins. The ministry of the law is not called the ministry of death because it's evil. It's not something that Moses came up with to destroy the people. It's beautiful. It comes with glory. It comes with the presence of God. It reveals His holiness. And it's not contrary to the righteousness of God. Rather, God's glorious presence is made manifest in the midst of the law. I love David's many meditations upon the law of God. It's perfect. Reviving the soul. There we see something of the holiness of God. The death comes. As a result of God's righteous judgment upon a people who deny his holiness through sin and unbelief. And if you read the account in Exodus 34 and the chapters that follow, sin and unbelief are everywhere. You see, God's glory is manifest in the law. But it's manifest in the revelation of his absolute holiness. That's what's revealed. That's what's glorious About the law. It's manifest by revealing the righteous requirement for fellowship with God without making any provision for the meeting of that righteous requirement. I'm going to say it again. I want to make sure you hear it. The the law is manifest by revealing the righteous requirement of fellowship with God without making any provision for the meeting of that. Requirement, which for fallen humanity, like ourselves, means the law will ultimately manifest in our judgment. So the life, the letter, kills. The law serves to reveal the glory of God and our unrighteousness. This is the contrast. The ministry of the Spirit does not only reveal the righteous requirement, It reveals the perfect provision by which God himself has met this requirement in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus receiving the just punishment for our sin. Jesus granting us his righteousness so that we might be reconciled to God. Look at verse 9 with me. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, there was a revelation of the perfection of, The righteous requirement of God. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. You see, the law reveals the glory of God, but how much more glorious that Christ has met the righteous requirement so that all who believe in him are made righteous through him. Now you can see how this ministry is through Christ to God. Through Christ Toward God. What do we get when we get Jesus? We get reconciliation with the glory of God unveiled. This is why the ministry of the gospel is a ministry of glory. It reveals the means by which we can be brought into the very presence of God and so behold the glory of God. This is why he goes into this last paragraph. Hopefully we've set the stage, understood the train of the logic so that we can finally understand what is otherwise a confusing paragraph. Beginning in verse 12, it says, Since we have such a hope. What hope? Well, that the Spirit of God has revealed glory of God and met the righteous requirement of the law through Christ toward God. Since we have that hope, we are very bold. Moses Covered his face, verse 13 says. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Moses covered his face. He did so because the people's hearts were hardened. And the same is true today for all who read the Scriptures apart from Christ. Hear this. All. All who try to receive the Scriptures as a good teaching, as a helpful word, as a good encouragement as a means to some other promise than God. All who read the Scriptures apart from Christ, a veil remains. There is no glory of God revealed for them. For without there being some sort of mediation, something or someone to stand between us and God, we would be consumed by the light of his glory. The veil is a sort of barrier, a protection, But while it serves to guard us from being consumed by God's glory, it also cuts us off from enjoyment of God's glory. Is there anything that can be done to lift the veil so we could see the face of God and enjoy the Creator? Verse 14, the end of that verse. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Christ removes the veil, the veil that hides the glory of God. Christ also serves as the mediator between us and God, much like Moses, right? The Lord is the Spirit, the passage says. Therefore, the Spirit of Christ reveals the very glory of the Lord. So freedom, true freedom, is to see the glory of the Lord without the fear of condemnation, with the veil Removed, And that is the work of the perfect mediator, Jesus. Moses came with news of the glory of God, even news in the form of a law, with no means to truly be reconciled to God. Jesus comes with news of the glory of God, even shining the very glory of God. And he himself is the means by which we are reconciled. He lifts the veil. This is the work of the perfect mediator. He forgives sin and brings us to God. Having removed the veil, we see God and we are being transformed by His Spirit. This is what Paul's telling us. In Exodus 34, Moses was transformed when he beheld the glory of God. He was transformed such that he displayed the very glory of God to the Israelites. Yet, He veiled the glory because of the hardness of their hearts. Today, all of us who have believed have a face-to-face encounter with God. The first question that we have to ask, is there any shining? Does it look like we have been in the presence of the righteous one? Is there any transformative work of the Spirit in our lives? Today, All of us who have believed have a face-to-face encounter with God. We've seen Jesus through the eyes of faith. We too are changed as we behold God in the face of Christ. Yet, because Christ has removed the veil between God and man, we are bold to display that glory of God. We don't minister with veiled faces. We minister, declaring the very glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Some of you see where I'm going. We who have seen God are transformed and are being transformed. We put the glory of God on display. So what is it that we proclaim so boldly? How do we put the glory of God on display? By becoming perfect obeyers? By becoming the the veneer of self-righteousness in our lives, we display the glory of God? Friends, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say, I'm going to put God on display, and then what they describe is by being good. Your goodness is going to put the glory of God on display. My goodness? It's nothing. What if what needs to be put on display is what we proclaim, what we have believed, and what has given us hope and joy in the midst of the mess of our self-righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. You'll notice you don't have to turn in your Bibles to it. It's where Paul's going. It's the next few sentences. Second Corinthians four, six. What is put on display? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's on display? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What just a few words earlier he calls the light of the gospel. One commentator says what Paul is contrasting in the big picture here is that type of new covenant ministry of the false teacher and the false ministry in Corinth who are about what he calls the the ministry of the glowing face. The ministry of the one who has their act together, who glows and displays and and, and struts their self-righteousness, their strength, their their rhetorical skill, their education, their wealth, in front of the people to gather a people, not to a, a great message, but to a great messenger, the ministry of the glowing face. But what is being contrasted is that with the ministry of a simple, and sincere message of the true glowing face. The minister isn't impressive. The minister doesn't glow in and of himself. The minister bears witness to the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. True gospel ministry doesn't put the minister on display, but rather the glory of our ministry must be nothing less than the glory of Christ himself. As George Guthrie says, real Christian ministry is about being transformed by the presence of Christ in a way that you manifest the glory of Christ in the world. How is the glory of Christ made manifest? But by means of the work of His cross. I've said it to you before. I think one of the best ways that you and I can put on display the glory of the cross is not by our self-righteousness. If we were righteous in and of ourselves, we don't need a cross. What puts the cross of Jesus Christ on display? Our weakness and our willingness to admit it. I'd argue one of the greatest powerful glories that we can display about Christ is that we are a people in need of repentance, in need of grace. And we put that on display, a people who are willing to admit that we are weak and in need of a Savior. And a people who shine because He's saved. And then a people who live in the light of His glory, who walk as He has shown us to walk, falteringly, constantly receiving His grace and a call to obedience, yes. But a people who have seen the grace of God and shine like it's worked in us. I would offer three implications for us today. Let us participate with confidence in gospel ministry. Us, you and me, together, in our households, and in our workplaces, and in our neighborhoods. Let's participate in gospel ministry together with confidence. It's not we who work, but Christ at work in us. Later in Second Corinthians, in chapter 5, verse 20, he says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's our simple message. The second implication. Let us rejoice in the ministry of the gospel in our midst. Perhaps one of the things that we can do in the church is ask too often, are we growing? Have any, anybody new come lately? What can we do to be more welcoming in our service and do a better job of assimilation in our strategies, can we rejoice that the Spirit has left his mark in our midst? (laughs) Say, the ministry of the gospel is authentic. It works. It's working transformation in the people of God. That is the commendation that we're looking for. We can be thankful that the Spirit of God is leaving his mark Upon us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is informing and transforming God's people. Third implication let us remember that through Christ we behold God's glory. You see, the glory of Christ is He's not only a mediator, He's God. That He doesn't just simply come to us to bring us to God, He comes to us that we might see God. In Christ, Here's what that means. We never graduate from the gospel. The gospel is not a means by which Jesus brings us to God, drops us off there, and now we get to just sort of hang out. We never graduate from beholding the grace of Jesus Christ in our daily lives. We never leave grace to take up a law whereby we show God how righteous we can be, that he made a good decision in saving us. We enjoy God's glory only when it is mediated through the righteousness of Christ. That every single day we should wake up and say, there is no righteousness in me, but I'm in Christ today. By grace alone, through faith alone, not by my own self-righteousness, no matter how much I would determine today to walk in his glory, to walk in the light today. I'm in him because the glory of Christ. Now I would be remiss if I didn't add a fourth implication. And really, it's it's the the central implication that you would believe that if you hear this and you say, I know a lot about that gospel. In fact, Pastor, I think I could probably say most of it. Perhaps I could even pass a fill-in-the-blank exam on this thing. And yet you've trusted in your own righteousness. And even right now, part of what the battle is that's going on in your heart is you know the way that you're failing. You know the way that you don't measure up to the righteousness of Christ. And you're, you're confused. Friends, that is what it means to be confused about the gospel. What you need to do is you need to lay down To believe, to believe that only by his grace, through faith, can you be forgiven and reconciled to God. That then is the beginning point and the the path by which we know our God for eternity. The call to you is to repent and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would work in hearts this morning. You encounter unbelief, that you would encounter our self righteous striving, that you would encounter our brokenness and you would see it for the brokenness that it is, that you would see the, the curse that is at work in us because of our own unrighteous disobedience and rejection, rebellion against your way. And that by your grace, we would not respond with, I'll do it better next time. We know better. Most of us are here, that are here are old enough to know. We won't do it better next time. But Lord, you have done it. You have worked the righteousness, you have died the death, that we might be forgiven and granted eternal life. I pray that your spirit would write that on hearts this morning. And when we see it, we would rejoice and we would say, That's the work of gospel ministry in our midst. It would commend us to rejoice in the glory of God. Thank you, Lord, for your work. Among us in in every soul, we pray that as we see it, we would give praise to your name. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen.